and how we are called by God to, to do that. That's a part of our calling. But the premise tonight that we're going to be talking about is that that light shines farthest, which shines brightest at home. And as we think through that, what can we do here? What can we do now? How can we be a part of this? Um, in the book on missions that uh, Liam referred to this morning and over the weekend, one of the things in the middle section of the book that I did was try to go back and, and for my own edification, just to learn, what did churches do? What did Christians do? How did this whole thing get started in such a powerful way where there have been various missions movements through the ages? And are there common denominators there? And what kinds of things did they invest themselves in? I saw a lot of different things about that. So I, I want to just in, invite you to, first of all, look with me to Second Corinthians chapter 2. And let's just read a few verses there. As a matter of fact, verses 17 to 21 uh, specifically. And just hear what, what Paul is having to say about this new creation that we are in Christ. This is, again, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 21. And after I've read, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to pick a couple of those movement markers out, and we're going to talk about them tonight. And, and then it'll be a little more, you know, story time with Uncle Davey tonight, I guess, maybe, because we're going to look at, at some of the, the stories of what happened and how those things came together uh, to give the brightness of the light of the radiant shining of God in the face of Christ. So let's read this together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a noble calling. That in him we ourselves, sinners though we once were, have been redeemed. We have been made new. The old things have passed away. And in him, we might become the righteousness of God so that an appeal can be made through folks like us for others to join us in beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. Unbelievable. We thank you for that privilege. And now we ask you to show us more of how this can be a reality for Christ's sake. Amen. Back when Kathy and I were in seminary, we lived in a little town up in... Uh, northern part of Massachusetts and it was a little place called Newburyport it was a, a great little city uh, right on the Merrimack River uh, back in the early days of colonial times sorry about that colony stuff um, but back in the colonial times it was the clipper ship capital uh, of the new world and it was vying with Boston to be the preeminent harbor uh, in New England uh, clipper ships went away um, Newburyport stayed now maybe 16,000, 18,000 people, and that's pretty much what it's been all through the years. But there was a lighthouse in Newburyport that was an amazing lighthouse in that uh, it, they didn't have exactly high-beam light bulbs back in those days. And so what they would do is they would make the most of the light that they would have. And in this lighthouse, they had beveled glass, cut glass, so that even just a candle behind that glass could be seen as many as 20 miles out to sea. 
and through the beveling of the glass, I think it was called the Fresnel lens or something like that. Uh, some of you scientists are going to go, no, that's not what that is. Okay, but anyway, it's a light that casts its, its beam a long way out to sea. With very little starting power, candle power here, it projected broadly. So what happens if we increase the candle power? What happens if the brightness of the rising of the shining of the glory of God in the face of Christ begins to impact us in such a way that uh, as Paul talks about here in this section in 2 Corinthians, the light is not fading away as it was with Moses. Remember the story of Moses coming down from in the presence of God and he put a veil over his face so that it wouldn't scare the Israelites to death. That was what the, the premise was in Exodus. And, and when we get to Paul here, he's saying, well, yeah, that's true. But there was also the reality that he covered up the brightness that was fading away. And so we don't have a problem with fading when Christ is the light shining through us. So how do we understand what we can be doing today to ramp up the brightness of the light? Do we need a Fresnel lens to magnify something that's really tiny? Or can we expect God to do something in us that's so magnificent that you cannot hide the brightness of the light of Christ in us. That's where we want to be tonight. And so I want to just look at these things. And, and just first of all, just to run through the, the nine characteristics of these missions movements through the years, just to kind of let you know where they are, and then I'll identify which ones we're going to focus on tonight. One was, we've already referred to it, uh, the power from on high, that, that regardless of your other motivations for missions, one of the things that has to happen, Jesus says, is wait until you've been endued with that power from on high. That's what preceded every work of the Spirit through missions movements all through history. Uh, secondly, a passion for Christ. Third, prevailing prayer. Those two are going to be our topic tonight. Four, a rich soaking in the scriptures and sound doctrine. Heretics need not apply. If, if you're in the word and there's sound doctrine, that, that fosters a great missionary atmosphere. Uh, next, unwavering faith that trusts God to be faithful in all things and just goes and lets him handle the details. Holiness and purity of light together with deep repentance and an abhorrence of sin. Eyes willing to see and have compassion on others. A supportive, sacrificial, generous, sending community. And then, not one that we vie for and are anxious to get at, but one that's a reality. Persecution and opposition have always advanced the cause of Christ. And so we who are in the West are saying, Lord, protect us. Don't let anything happen to us. Uh, and that flies in the face of the reality that most of the time the gospel has gone forth most aggressively when we have been under some kind of, of oppression or persecution. So those are the nine there. And what I want us to do tonight is just look at a couple of these issues. One, being a passion for Christ. I mean, I'd love to go through most of them, but, but let's look first at this passion for Christ. We've talked about it a couple of times over the course of the weekend. And, and see what is there in this passage in Second Corinthians and then other things aligned with it. The language of this passage is very familiar. We, we get this, this kind of, of conversation going on here, that, that God is doing something in us, that there's a, a massive transformation at work in us, that, that God is changing that which was fading away and making it alive in Christ. And he is therefore letting the beauty and letting the grace and letting the glory of Christ absolutely capture our hearts. And when that has captured our hearts, something radical happens. Our, our lives begin to be so different because we are, are changed from within. Chapter 4, he says that this is the, the not preaching of ourselves at all. The problem with lost people is that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of God as the image of God. Or image of God. So he says they can't see it. 
That's the definition of lostness. Their eyes are blinded. So what we're going to do is not preach ourselves, not preach some cleverness on our part, but we want to preach Christ as Lord, ourselves as servants for Christ's sake, and to understand that the light shall shine out of darkness, making his light shine in our hearts to give us that light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's verse 6. And then verse 7 says, we, we have this treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God. It's not from us. What a great picture. We, we have this treasure. Now, what about this treasure? One of the things that we're noticing in America, and, and I don't know if it's happening here uh, in the UK, but it is a reality there, is that a new generation is arising that is beginning to be very familiar with the stories of Jesus. They're very familiar with the Bible uh, texts. They, they understand doctrine. They, they could actually probably explain to you how to become a believer, but, but something is missing. And a part of what we've recognized in our congregation is we've tried to sort out and, and survey our kids and watch as, as kids that were growing up in the church were abandoning their faith, basically trashing what is a treasure. And so we begin to ask, what's happening? Are, are we not passing something on when we're passing it on to them? The thing that we were missing and we still recognize is a, is a danger. We're passing on the knowledge, but not the heart. We're passing on the fact that these are truths, but not that, that Jesus is the treasure of our hearts. And so several years ago, we began uh, to redesign some things so that we were teaching from our, our children all the way up through uh, the last year of secondary school, that, that period of time. We were teaching a, a curriculum called uh, Treasuring Christ. And, and that's become our curriculum. It's, it comes in four-year cycles to help the kids understand. Here's the message of the Bible in those four-year terms. And they repeat it in the next four years, in the next four years, in the next four years. But what we want them to understand is that Christ is to be treasured. And this is, this is a, a glorious gift that God has given us in his son. So it's not just a truth to be embraced or a, a rational understanding of a logistical problem of we've got a sin here, we've got a holy God there. How do we fix that? Well, that's what the gospel is, yes. But, but there is a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who is our treasure. He is, he is the infinitely worthy one. And so Paul in Philippians 3 says, you've got to understand, I, I looked at my life and I saw what was there, and there was a lot of religious good stuff there. He says, but I, in verse 8, he says, I count it all as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and, and count them as rubbish if I can just have Christ. Is that the way we feel? Because that's the fire that burns. That's the treasure that we want to honor. That's, that's the thing that makes our hearts ring with a sense of joy that, God, if I just have Jesus, I have everything I need. If I just have Christ. And, and we are not passing that kind of passion on because, frankly, we have let some of that passion in our own lives wane. And so God calls us to be the kind of people who will recognize that the only impetus that will sustain a missions movement is an overwhelming love for Christ and recognizing that, yes, Lord Jesus, you are the surpassing value of all values. There's a, a great hymn we learned several years ago that, that says, In Jesus I am resting, resting. You know that song here? I don't know if you've even heard it, but it's got a line in there. It says, uh, You are a priceless treasure and your beauty fills our souls. Isn't that a great line? I, I, yeah, I know about Jesus. I know the stories, all the stuff. Yeah, but, but does his beauty fill your soul 
That's a glorious picture. And so therefore, I mentioned it this morning, and I'll say it again tonight. Sending churches, the churches that we're talking about, this place, Charlotte Chapel, Providence, other places like these places, sending churches will be savoring churches for whom Christ is most precious. We will be people who are so smitten with Christ. I remember when our youngest son came home in love, you know, and he's going, I think this is, I think this is it. You know, we're going, yeah, we do too. <laughs> I mean, you, you have that look on your face of smitten. I mean, you are just struck hard by that, by that look. And so churches that are really going to be sending churches are going to be the churches that savor Christ as the highest value, the greatest treasure, and really see in him the wonder of what it means to do what Psalm 27 says, that we would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and, and seek him and meditate on him in his temple and, and just be absorbed with the wonder of Christ. Uh, that's not the experience of modern worshiping Christians. A.W. Tozer wrote back in the 1950s, he says the church has lost its, its ability to, to withdraw into silence and, and adore him in that inner silence. We, we've, we've gotten so busy and so functional and so almost mechanistic in our doing of our job that we've lost that adoration and that awe. Well, who's, who's the, the kingpin of missions then in many of our minds? Well, William Carey, of course. Yeah, we've got to say that because, you know, Here's where we are, and we're friends of William Carey. We get that, and, and we understand the history there. But how about Hudson Taylor? Does that name sound familiar to some of you? Hudson Taylor, a great missions guru. That's a big time. Um, by his death, he had established 205 mission stations all over China. Um, didn't look like a, much of a success from the world's perspective, but 205 mission stations, that seems pretty good. And, and as he was processing the call of God to go, he was a 21-year-old medical student who decided that, look, I, my life is short. I need to get there. I need to do what I need to do. And, and his second son, uh, excuse me, yeah, the second son of Hudson Taylor, a guy named Howard Taylor, he wrote some of the, the questions. What was the secret of Hudson Taylor's life? And he said, well, it really wasn't so much a secret. The simple, profound secret of drawing for every need, temporal or spiritual, upon the faithful, fathomless wealth of Christ is simply that he found in Christ all that he needs. Everything that he needs is in Christ. And so in his book, uh, he describes what God was doing in his particular life and, and how he was saying, Lord, uh, I am so taken with Christ. I'm so passionate about the Savior. Just... Let me give myself to you. I don't know if you will accept someone like me, but if you will, that would be great. And someone afternoon, he, he says, well, do I remember as I put myself, my life, my friends, my all upon the altar, the deep solemnity that came over my soul with the assurance that my offering was accepted. They, they got it said, okay, you can come, J. Hudson Taylor, and be my man. He says, the presence of God became unutterably real and blessed and I remember stretching myself on the ground and lying there before him with unspeakable awe and unspeakable joy. For what service I was accepted, I knew not. But a deep consciousness that I was not my own took possession of me, which has never been effaced. I saw him, and I sought him. I had him, and I wanted him. Whew. Okay, 
line up who wants to go be a Hudson Taylor fan. I mean, that's one of those things you hear that and you think, good gracious, what a, what a passion that is. And how did that work out that way? And so he's, he's processing. I'm going to go because of my passion for Christ. He accepted me. I don't know what. He got clarity. He goes. And as he's getting ready to leave, he is, he's wrapping up his affairs. He's living in a different place from his family. And he writes this letter to his mother. This is that Uncle Davy story time I was telling you about. Here's, here's what happens. He says, if I should be accepted to go at once, would you advise me to come home before sailing away? I long to be with you once more, and I know you would naturally wish to see me, but I almost think it would be easier for us not to meet. Mamas, get ready for that. I almost think it would be better for us not to meet than having met to part again forever. No, not forever. I, I can't write more but hope to hear from you as soon as possible. Pray much for me. It's easy to talk of leaving all for Christ, but when it comes to the proof, it is only as we stand complete in him we can go through with it. God be with you and bless you, my own dear mother, and give you so to realize the preciousness of Jesus that you may wish for nothing but to know him, even the fellowship of his suffering. You may never see me again, Mom. I'm leaving. And I'm doing what Christ has called me to do. And I'm not just trusting for the sufficiency of the perfection of the completeness of Christ to be enough for me. I love him, trust him so much that I'm expecting that he is going to be that for you as well. <sighs> Mama, how do you read that letter? 15, 16 years ago, our oldest son decided to go for the summer and, and spend the summer in South Korea and doing ministry there. Uh, Hudson Taylor took him five months by boat to get to China. It took my son two days to get there by jet. So this is not exactly a point-by-point -point comparison. You get this, right? So, so he gets there, and, uh, you know, he has to write a letter that has to take another five months to get back, and five months, you know, so that's going on. He calls once he gets to Korea. Uh, we're here. I'm fine. Yes, my family that's hosting me speaks English, but only enough so that there's a lot of nodding and smiling going on. Good to see you. Orange juice? Yes. You know. And so here's, here's going on. And he's telling me about what's going on. And, and we're in the United States talking to him in Korea. And, and then it happened. Now we're talking away. <coughs> you know, a little clearing of the throat. And then that catch. Oh. You know, I'm going, are you okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Well, daddy here, you know, I'm just like, oh, my word. If I wanted to, I couldn't be there for him for two days. I, this, is, this is my baby boy. I mean, I know he's 20-something years old, but he's my baby boy. And he's on the other side of the world, and I can't do anything for him. Christ is going to have to be his perfect sufficiency. And that's enough. That's more than enough. That is the joy of what it means when we dare to venture forth to the ends of the earth with the gospel of Christ or to live the gospel right here in the center of our little world. Whether it's academia or business or whatever it is, God is saying Christ is enough. And for you to develop a passion for him and to have that joy that comes when the light of the radiance of the glory of God is shining forth from his heart into you and through you to others tell you this is a treasure in an earthen vessel that we cannot do anything but nurture because that light shines farthest which shines brightest right here 
cultivate, what can we do? Cultivate your love for Christ. Liam has mentioned it a couple times. We cultivate it. We pour the fuel of the word there. We let the breath of the spirit blow in it. We want it to get to that white hot passion that sears our hearts to do anything but what would please the master. So, passion for Christ? Oh, yeah. You can't leave home without it. You have to have that above everything else. We say, I don't know if God's calling me to missions. It doesn't matter if he's calling you overseas to missions. You want this white-hot passion for Christ. You want to be able to have that unspeakable joy, that unspeakable awe that Taylor talked about, that Paul talks about, that all who have known him and loved him and longed for his appearing know about. Dear friends, do not settle for a relationship with Christ in which you do not treasure him. Okay? That's point number one. Point number two is that this kind of mission movement is established through prevailing prayer. It doesn't happen on a whim and through an organizational sophistication. It happens because God himself establishes that prayer is the precedent for missions. We read the passage this morning from Matthew 9, 37 and 38. The harvest is plentiful. Liam says there's 7.2 billion people on the planet. That's a big harvest field. He says, but the workers are few. Our personal denomination, the Baptists in, in uh, the south part of the United States, the Southern Baptists, we have just heard an announcement that we were pulling about six or 700 of our missionaries off the field because of lack of support. Yay, team? No, that's, that's, that's a travesty that we don't have the funding that's sustaining the effort to increase our tribe. And so there's going to have to be some other ways. Where's the praying? Jesus says, we got to beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And that means that churches join together to pray for God to send the workers and then to send the funds to support the workers and then to join them linked up together with them in prayer. And so prayer is that language of our deepest desires I mentioned this morning, that Gardner Spring idea that, that prayer is the, the language that is the window box into our souls. This shows what we really love and desire and long for. And, and that which we pray for consistently and fervently has to match the design in the heart of God. It's that, that Psalm 2.8, Ask of me, I will surely give your, you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Just ask. Prayer that captures our hearts and consumes our desires that says you, you can't not pray for these things because they're so real on the heart of God that, that precedes every great missions movement. Every time you have a great movement of God, it has been saturated with prayer before the first person got on the first boat to go to the first nation. Always saturated with prayer. Do we have that kind of prayer going on anymore? Where is that kind of prayer in the body of Christ? It is essential. There is this desire that, that no, we, we cannot go until we have prayed. And so Jesus told the, the disciples, you stay here in Jerusalem until you've been endued with power from on high. You don't, don't go anywhere yet. And instead of just going back about their business for a while, it says that they gathered together, the 120 strong, and they gathered and they prayed. And they prayed and they prayed. And then God sent the Holy Spirit the, the movement of, of the gospel started flying everywhere. It was just a glorious picture. But as the church prayed, preached, and served, the Lord built this community of faith that was born by grace and established by the power of prayer. And then he began to do that great work of getting the gospel to the nations. It was not going to be a local cult or a sect. It was going to be an international movement 
that would impact folks in Scotland, in the U.S., and in China, in India, and wherever in the world you happen to know anybody, the gospel is getting there because God answers prayer. So how are we praying? And what precedent do we have for prayer? Well, when I was a college student, I had uh, my first ministry assignment anywhere was in a small little church in my college town of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Everybody said, amen, we love that place. You have never heard of it. Uh, and in that, in that city is Wake Forest University. And Winston and Salem were merged together as Winston-Salem, very clever, uh, as a city many, many years ago. Salem had been one of two enclaves in the, in the United States where Moravians from Europe had located. One in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, one in Salem, North Carolina. Well, who are the Moravians? No, they're not Mormons. They're, they're Moravians. They're from a section of Bohemia and Moravia that, that found themselves back in the late 1600s and early 1700s under great duress and persecution. The government was coming after them. They were persecuting them because they were not playing ball according to the religious traditions of the day. There were emissaries of the Roman church that were sent out to annihilate them, to get rid of them. This is not a group that we need to have in Europe. Let's get rid of them. And so they're looking for a place where these, this united brethren could come together and they could begin to live in community according to the gospel principles they believed. So uh, there was a gentleman in that part of the world, Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Write that down. It's very important. He has a laundry and dry cleaners named after him in Winston-Salem. It's a very important name. No, but his, his claim to fame was that he was rich and he had a lot of land and he had a lot of influence and he opened up an area near Bertelsdorf, Germany, for them to come and establish a community. And they would begin to build this community of faith, living out the, what the principles were of the gospel, and, and he provided that place for that to, to, to build up and grow. And so as they gather together, what happens when believers gather together? Where two or three are gathered together in his name, there usually were six opinions. And so doctrinally, they started getting trouble. And they began to realize that they had differences with each other and they were beginning to get a little edgy and this Christian community was beginning to come apart. Zinzendorf at this time was age 27. For those of you who think, well, he doesn't do anything until they're much older. At age 27, he prayed and prayed, God, what can you do to restore the community of these people? How do we get them together? And he personally started visiting every home in the community, praying with them, encouraging them in Christ and sharing scripture with them. This is a 27-year-old guy who's just Count Zinzendorf. He's not a pastor. He just loves Christ and he is passionate about his Savior and he wants the testimony of the body of Christ to be real. And so he did this and it went on and on and began to see God moving in a special way. And then in August, as a matter of fact, August 13, 1727, they had a special communion service in the community and the fires of heaven fell. It was one of those moments that actually in the Moravian tradition, they say it was a Moravian Pentecost because on that day, such a revival swept through that community that God united hearts in such a powerful way that the influence was felt as people were even coming down the highways and traveling through the, the lanes and things in the surrounding communities. People would stop and come under conviction, come into the village and say, we don't know what's going on, but we need help. What kind of help do you need? We and they began to explain lostness. We feel lost. We, you know, and they were able to hear the gospel. It was just an amazing time. This started in 1727, August 13, with that great revival. What also began there was not just the power of the testimony 
of the Spirit to unite and then give power to the gospel, they began to pray. And what they began to do in their prayer time was they would commit two people per hour for every hour of the day. And so a prayer chain began in the Hernhut community. And they would pray. Two hours on, then the next two people would come on board. Why do you think they had two? Because one goes to sleep, right? I understand. <laughs> they needed accountability. And so they prayed together. And every hour of the 24, they prayed. How long do you think that went on? Some of you know the history. 100 years every hour of every day of every week of every month for 100 years they prayed now you think the God in heaven was going like oh gee what fanatics these crazy people leave it alone no no what happened in this village in this community God started doing things in an amazing way and over the course of the next many many years praying around the clock for God to do what he wanted to do in this small community. That was an amazing thing. There was a guy who was in Arabia and wrote a book about this in 1927. He says, prayer of this kind always leads to action. In this case, it kindled a burning desire to make Christ's salvation known to the heathen. It led to the beginning of modern foreign missions. And from that one small village community, more than 100 missionaries went out in 25 years. You'll look in vain elsewhere for anything to match it in the same, to the same extent in, in church history. God did an amazing thing there. And so we, we hear that and you think, wow, man, you've you got to be 1720 to be able to do that because people are busy today. You know, our lives are important and theirs were just... No, they're just like us. And they knew the power of prevailing prayer. So, many more things to say, but let us wrap this up. We need to be people who are keeping the fire of our passion for Christ so hot that it is a white-hot passion that cannot be put out. And the brightness of that white-hotness shines far and far and far to the ends of the earth because it began here shines farthest that burns brightest right here at home and that fire is fueled not just by the the understanding of scriptures and and sound doctrine which is essential you can't miss that but it is fueled by treasuring christ in such a way that we long to prevail in prayer with him and that we will not be in any way accused of anything but that importunate prayer that the scriptures in the old King James used to say, which means shamelessly persistent in prayer until we watch God do some amazing things. I had some African-American friends in my city, good buddies, and they started Operation Push. I said, what is Operation Push? Pray until something happens. (laughs) I said, what a great way to live. May we be a part of the generation of push, that we pray until something happens, until God knocks down the barriers brings the nations within our view and causes our hearts to long to see a new day when the nations will rejoice and they will populate those spots around the throne of God when all from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will gather in praise together and sing glory to the Lamb of God. Amen? Amen. I'm turning it over to you, sir, because I'm done. They won't let me talk anymore. <laughs>